one of the things that we, that our team uh, developed, I think it was in like, I might be wrong on this, but I think it's like, it was maybe 2009, 2010. We had a group that came together to form the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative. And one of the major projects that they entered into with a large pharmaceutical company was a project in Medellin, Colombia in South America. There's a group of a population, you know, that is down there. They're all genetically linked. It's a small mountainous region. And a neurologist there years ago started seeing this connection between these family members who would have Alzheimer's symptoms starting at like age 45, very early and started seeing this unique genetic link. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Tricia Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. The next two weeks, we are going to feature a healthcare innovator, and a consistent message of this podcast is how healthcare real estate is a demand-driven and mission-critical component of delivering healthcare services. Today's episode features a guest that is a perfect example. Our healthcare innovator for the next two episodes features Banner Health's Alzheimer's Institute Imaging Program, a center of excellence at Banner Health University Medical Center, supporting the research goals of the institute. Banner Health has two memory care facilities, one in Phoenix, one in Tucson, and a research facility in Sun City. My guests today are Connie Boker, Director of Operations, and Jennifer Craig Mueller, Director of the All of Us Research Program. Thank you and welcome. Connie and Jennifer, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you, Trish. Yeah, thank you. So do you both work out of the downtown Phoenix location adjacent to Banner Health University Medical Center? We do. Okay. We do. And um, well, that and at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hybrid. Um, for the audience, the Banner Alzheimer's Institute is a special institute at Banner Health, and it was founded in 2006. So why don't you guys provide the history of the BAI and why Banner created it and its mission? Okay. Jennifer, you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So um, Dr. Eric Ryman is a psychiatrist, he's an MD psychiatrist, but really had after he, you know, got out of school at Duke and did his fellowship and at WashU and worked with, you know, some of the people there, he really, really developed a strong interest in the brain imaging side of Alzheimer's disease. He always kind of had an interest in strong interest in the brain imaging side of that. And so when he came to Good Samaritan Medical Center in the early nineties, he was actually the first person to bring a PET scanner to the state of Arizona. So PET is positron emission tomography. And unlike, you know, an MRI or CT, it actually images the metabolic activity of the brain. In this case, it, we, there's, it's used for other obvious other medical reasons, but his interest was with the brain imaging. So we had that. And then in order to do a PET scan, you have to have 
um, a pet radio tracer. This is actually a compound that has a very, very short half-life. And so you have to make it within, you know, hours of where you're going to use it because the half-life's only like 120 minutes. So we developed the first radiochemistry facility within the state of Arizona as well, where we could actually manufacture that initially it was a fluorodeoxyglucose pet tracer that he would use with his count, his PET scans. And then we had several other tracers that were developed at the time that were very interesting. So that was kind of how the brain imaging research side of things got started. He did that at Good Samaritan Medical Center, which of course is what now is Banner University Medical Center Phoenix, um, for probably mm, about, well, more than 10 years. And that's where I first met him in, when I was directing operations there. But in 2006, his biomarker research that he was doing, you know, he, he had an interest in uh, formalizing the institution of Banner Alzheimer's Institute and expanding the research to include clinical trials. And that's when Dr. Pierre Terrio joined in 2006 w- with the formation of Banner Alzheimer's Institute, was, which is one of the first centers of excellence that, that Banner actually created. And since that time, it's just, it's just grown exponentially. And I, I can't remember, but, and Jennifer, you may know what this is, but I know when our public relations people talk, it's like, there's a huge percentage. It's like, I think it's over 70% of media that mentions Banner that is related to Banner Alzheimer's Institute. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, you guys are doing amazing things and, and uh, the, hopefully you'll share all of that with the audience here. Um, so uh, Jennifer, why don't you go first and then Connie to give Connie a little break here, but when did you join the BAI? Yes, I've worked at Banner Health in different capacities. So I joined first in 2018 and then a year later switched over to BAI. So I've been here about two years now. And Connie? Well, let's see which time I've been at Banner probably, oh, five, four or five different times. But the last time I started was in uh, 2009 with Banner Alzheimer's Institute. So have been in a number of different roles doing like research administration. At one point, I was a director of research finance, which, you know, I'm not a CFO. So that wasn't really any kind of long-term goal of mine to become one. And my role in the last seven years has been as the director of operations for our brain imaging research program, which includes the PET scanning department, the MRI scanning department, our radiochemistry facility that manufactures these radio tracers, and then a group of very, very bright people who do all of the imaging analysis of the things that we acquire on our scanners. And they inform our investigators about all the interesting things that they find in the brain. They do quantitative analyses of changes in the brain that it's just amazing to me. I I don't even know how their brains work that way. (laughs) I just call it magic. Yeah. Well, the BAI offers treatment and non-treatment studies as well as support and education. And can you 
please provide an overview of some of the research studies and success stories. Um, what are some of the interesting general results from treatment studies? Uh, is there promising results for medication to help treat Alzheimer's or prevent its progression? And we should note that the research projects enroll not just those with memory or neurodegenerative disease issues, but also include healthy volunteers in both the memory disorders clinic and the treatment research studies, which include the pharmaceutical clinical studies. Yeah, so I think first I can give you an overview of the non-treatment trials. Um, so these are typically what we call observational studies. So it's really important to make sure we understand what healthy aging looks like. So that way someone who is progressing has cognitive issues or is progressing through their Alzheimer's disease, um, we can actually compare that to what a normal individual would look like who doesn't have any, any disease or cognitive issues. Um, so about 25 years now, Dr. Ryman, who's the CEO of Banner Research, um, started a, a cohort study in which he brings in healthy participants every other year. So we do cognitive assessments to kind of just figure out, you know, how is their thinking and memory working? Um, and then as Connie mentioned, we do brain imaging. So the PET scans, the MRIs, as well as collect biospecimens, so blood and then spinal fluid um, through a lumbar puncture. So really this study has had some pretty amazing results. It really kind of has set the foundation, like I said, to say what um, see what healthy aging looks like. And then really, if you imagine studying someone over 25 years, you start to identify changes that occur and when. Um, so Dr. Ryman was able to actually identify different biomarkers is what we call them. So these are really kind of proteins or, or different structures in the brain that are signs of the neurodegeneration that might be related to cognitive impair. So Dr. Ryman has really kind of set the standard for identifying these changes really before clinical symptoms um, are available. Um, so that's really the benefit of observational studies. So last year, he actually had a very large publication that might lead to a blood test for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, right, it's, it's diagnosed kind of after death um, through an autopsy or through these complex imaging that Connie described. So if you imagine a blood test, you know, would be a lot more accessible to many people. You want to take it from there. I think that kind of was the foundation for um, other trials, more treatment focused trials that we have done recently. Yeah. So through, so through some of the biomarker studies, which really were some of the initial research projects that we would do, either they were maybe founded uh, through the researchers at Banner Alzheimer's Institute or through collaborators that we have at research institutions throughout the country. And that information, along with the startup that we had with a structured clinical trials team and program leader, Dr. Terrio brought a lot of experience and knowledge related to how clinical trials are structured, how they're designed, and how they're managed from a safety and regulatory perspective, and really helped us grow that part of our program. So when Dr. Ryman and he really, you know, started looking at some of the biomarker studies, and like I said, our analysts would look at these changes over time, when it's important for us to understand when we enroll people who may have certain characteristics, whether that be age, age plus genetic makeup or family history, when you're enrolling these people and you're studying them over a 20-year period, the thing that you gain is you, with our analysts who are so talented at examining these you know, minute changes in the brain, they can look at how those changes occur with normal aging. Like, do these people have changes in their MRI that are typical with maybe dementia, onset of dementia or Alzheimer's? Do they have changes that are typical with the onset of Alzheimer's in the PET scan? But it's important to see what that what the changes are with normal aging 
It's also important to see what those changes are with disease progression. So if you have somebody who starts when they're 45 and one of these trials continues to 70 and suddenly you see no changes in one person, but you see other unique changes that are associated with onset of cognitive decline, that kind of thing. It tells you something about you know where to focus your efforts for research. And with some of the things they see is they see that there are these amyloid plaques that are developing in the brain and there's a tau, uh, abnormal tau accumulation in the brain. And there's a thought that those things contribute greatly to this cognitive decline, but the complex mechanisms about how that actually happens, how those things occur in the brain is something that is still being studied. But that said, you can then you know, look at a clinical trial And, you know, we have one large one that our team has worked with a pharmaceutical company to develop. I'll talk about in a minute. But with those clinical trials, you can actually focus on trying to not just treat, you know, some of the symptoms or the side effects and stuff of dementia once that occurs. But before that cognitive decline occurs, you can look at trying to develop treatments to keep some of those things from happening, to keep the amyloid plaque from forming and, you know, causing neuronal damage, or you can keep the tau from forming. So that's part of what we are kind of focused on, that it's not the only thing. And you will find researchers who want to direct their efforts other places. But one of the things that we, that our team developed, I think it was in like, I might be wrong on this, but I think it's like, it was maybe 2009, 2010, we had a group that came together to form the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative. And one of the major projects that they entered into with a large pharmaceutical company was a project in Medellin, Colombia in South America. There's a group of a population, you know, that is down there. They're all genetically linked. It's a small mountainous region. And a neurologist there years ago started seeing this connection between these family members who would have Alzheimer's symptoms starting at like age 45, very early, and started seeing this unique genetic link to this disease. And so it made an almost ideal population to really start looking at some of these treatments that are pre-symptomatic. So in other words, these are people who genetically have this unique genetic biomarker that leads to early onset, but now, you know, they could be agreed to, to be treated with this immunotherapy and see if that could stave off the disease or slow the progression down in these people who are most likely to develop this cognitive decline. So that study has been going on for over seven years now, and it's coming pretty soon to some conclusion, but there's a lot of data to be analyzed. There were only over 300 people that participated in it. And so it'll be interesting to see what they actually find with that. And then a lot of the other pharmaceutical trials that we're participating in are actually looking at the prevention as well. The other clinical trials, I mean, some of them are just treating some of the symptoms of dementia. It's looking at things that maybe reduce agitation that might be associated with symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, treatments that help people think better, medications that they can see that can kind of slow down some of the memory decline. So we probably at any point in time have between a dozen and two dozen different clinical trials, clinical treatments going on besides our biomarker studies. 
And both of you work in the non-treatment clinical research to support the, the clinical research. So why don't you both describe, you know, your focus and Connie, I'll give you a break and come back to you <laughs> and let Jennifer uh, talk about her role. And then um, you'll come back and talk about your role. Yeah. Thank you. So um, as the director of research, I have a team of clinical research coordinators, as they're called, that really actively work with participants. So my role, so a clinical trial or any sort of trial that works with participants, um, you have a lot of regulatory on the front end. So my job really is to kind of figure out what Dr. Ryman, the investigator of the study, um, wants to work on. And so he'll give me the objectives and the goals. And then from there, I kind of have to bring it to fruition, basically. Um, so working with a finance team to figure out the budget and how we're going to support it financially. Like I said, working with the different regulatory bodies. So you write what's called a, a protocol, which actually lays out kind of the study from start to finish. So, you know, over the next five years, what's going to happen? What does it look like for the participants? How are you going to communicate with them? How are you going to recruit them? Everything until they're through the study. So it's my responsibility to kind of make sure all of those pieces come into place. So once the study starts, it's really more so the day-to-day -day interaction with participants. So like I said, if someone's interested in the study, you know, you communicate with them, you let them know what participation would look like, and then inform consent, and then data collection. Um, so like I said, I have a wonderful team that actually is the one interacting with them, with the participants on a day-to-day -day basis. So a lot of operational details at that point. Um, and at the very end, fun part where the data analysis and kind of collection comes in to work with, you know, as Connie mentioned, the very smart individuals and make sure that they have everything that they need um, to kind of make different conclusions. Well, I imagine you have to, um, the participants just letting them know what's going to happen because if someone's like, well, we're going to study your brain, you know, to let them know what exactly that means. And it could just be scary. The scary words, even though what you're doing is not scary, but just to let them know. Agreed. And I will say that that's probably the hardest part is, you know, the, the longer you are doing this job, the better, like your word choice can be a little bit. <laughs> I think you show someone the MRI and you know, that you kind of get your head locked into it. So anyone with claustrophobia, you know, tends to struggle a little bit. Um, so it really is making sure people feel at ease. Um, you know, they are volunteers to this study. They don't necessarily need to be here. They're really doing it to advance science, which we're appreciative of. Um, but it really is um, a lot of education on the front end. You're right on that. <laughs> and then Connie, why don't you uh, tell us what, what you do, what you're focused on? So my role primarily, um, the departments that I oversee are, like I said, the MRI imaging. We have a 3T MRI. So we want to see a lot of detail in the brain. And so that's a very strong magnet and gives us a lot of detail. We also um, can do what's called task-based functional MRIs. We have a lot of uh, researchers from ASU who like to use it because we have actually like a computer screen that they can see. There's a set of goggles that they have that mimic a computer screen and they'll get instructions and they have a little response box where they can actually, with their fingers, they can respond to some of the questions asked. And then you can actually watch the brain from the functional to just the, the static imaging. So they can tell a lot about what's going on with changes in the brain. We do that with you know investigators at some of the universities here. We also do support safety MRIs for like our clinical research um, treatment trials. Then we have the PET center, the Positron Emission Tomography Center. We have two PET CT uh, scanners that are heavily used to support Jennifer's trials or Jennifer's research with the biomarker. But we also use those to support our clinical trials, which again, because we're 
we have investigational, you know, drugs or pharmaceuticals that are treating, you know, making changes to maybe to things in the brain. We want to make sure we're really watching that and see what's going on from a safety perspective, but also just from an efficacy perspective is what we're expecting this pharmaceutical to do actually happening. So we'll do things like we'll scan amyloid plaques in the brain. We scan tau tissue. We can scan for like inflammation. Each of these things will scan for brain activity based on, you know, how much like the sugar or glucose uptake is used. So all of these things require different radio tracers or radio pharmaceuticals that are used with a pet. And what we do with the pet is unlike an MRI where we see like a physical or anatomical structure, the radio pharmaceutical is designed such that the non-radioactive part of it targets a certain type of tissue. So with amyloid scans, we have compounds that the brain, the amyloid tissue in the brain has a strong affinity for. So when you inject that into somebody's bloodstream, give it time to metabolize, what we see is that amyloid tissue grabs that. Well, we have, what we've done before we inject it is we've tagged it with a radioactive marker and that radioactive marker then is what is emitted for that positron emission tomography scanner to pick up. So we can actually see those areas where that tracer accumulates, which tells us something about like in this case, the amyloid burden in the brain. And this is why I say there's, I, I always tell people, I actually manage a group of really, really smart people. I can't do what they do. I just have to make sure they have the tools and the resources to do their jobs. <laughs> I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.